That's why Kyle Rittenhouse is celebrated. Why? Because he's killing liberals. Your ultimate goal is to destroy and kill the other side. Well, then you're not going to stop until you destroy and kill the other side. It's not to work with or have a functioning society anymore. It's to kill the other side, to destroy the other side. That's why half the country is worried about a civil war and the other half is wishing for it. Like that's the goal of of politics now. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today was really excellent. He is Ryan Bussey, author of the book Gunfight, a memoir that reveals how the gun industry radicalized a large swath of America and bonded with the Republican Party. Ryan was a celebrated gun industry executive who served for many years as VP of sales for Kimber and helped build an iconic gun company. But while the gun industry was moving right, Ryan resisted. I was really interested to hear Ryan's insider perspective about how the gun industry changed our country and what might be done about it. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Ryan Bussey of the book Gunfight. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Ryan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Ryan Bussey. I grew up on a rural western Kansas cattle ranch and wheat farm. For purposes of this discussion, I guess it's important to note that I grew up, I like to say, with a shotgun in one hand and a rifle in the other. Guns played an important part in my life, just like they do for the lives of a lot of ranch kids. I entered the firearms industry after graduating from college, kind of as a dream job. Much like some young kids want to play baseball, I wanted to do something that was associated with things that I love to do, hunting and fishing. So I got a job in the firearms industry, uh, helped grow a very small company into a large influential company, won lots of awards in the firearms industry, became quite troubled with what I saw as the increasing extremism and radicalization the firearms industry and the NRA were fomenting, spent more than two decades fighting back against that while I was still working inside the business, trying to do two things at one time, and eventually wrote a book about all that called Gunfight, which is why we're here today. It is. I think that people in my audience, many of them are going to not be apt to understand that relationship with guns. My own is extremely limited. You know, even though I spent a lot of time in a farm in rural Vermont, I never have handled any firearm. I've watched a lot of Westerns where people are pulling them and it seems like uh, a little scary when, when they're on everyone's hip, but growing up, what was the big attraction? So I think you ask a really important question and I wanted to address that in the first part of my book. I think there's a lot of people who don't understand 
what seems to many people is this weird cultural fascination with guns. How is it that guns can be so intertwined with the lives and political identity of so many people? So in the, in the very first stories in my book, I try to detail how that comes to pass for so many people like me. I grew up on a farm and ranch where we worked very hard and we didn't have a lot of time to do things that were much fun at all. And oftentimes when we did get to do things, when I got to do anything with my father, it was pheasant hunting or it was deer hunting or it was target shooting. So these were things where guns were kind of at the center. We didn't worship them like some weirdos do now, but they were very central to the things that we love to do to our cultural identity. They were passed down from generation to generation. Although many people think of them as just steel and wood, maybe like you do, it's a tool, it's an inanimate thing. But that's not the way many people in the United States view guns. They're symbolic of cultural sort of touchstones that represent things that were true or that you wish to be true, or memories with your father or shooting with my brother, for instance, or now gathering wild, sustainable food. They become emblematic of something much larger than just this steel, wood, plastic kind of tool. Nobody gets up in the morning or sets up the night before you're going to work on your deck and looks at your hammer and thinks, oh my gosh, what a beautiful hammer this is and how my grandfather passed this hammer down. It's a tool just like a gun, but guns, somehow there's this sort of cultural significance that emanates from them. And it can be quite healthy. It it has been for me and, and remains so for me. I shoot with my boys. I hunt with my boys. Many of the best times in our life have been centered around guns and hunting and shooting. And so it can be quite healthy, but that sort of very emotional cultural connection can also be used and twisted in political ways. And I think that's what we're seeing now in our our country. Well, you know, I understand and relate to that kind of attraction to a tool. I have a friend who's a internationally famous woodworker, and he has written a book on woodworking planes. And, you know, he has some absolutely beautiful ones. I think if you hang around with him and you watch him cut beautifully thin strips of wood with these tools, you can have that same veneration, I think, around a tool. And I could see a beautiful gun. In fact, I I have a friend here in DC who also has in his family, a country home in Virginia. And I've been there, seen his like gun cabinet, I heard him talk about it. In fact, the two of us went to a gun show together just so that I would kind of have a sense of that culture. When I was at that gun show, I could see why the guns were kind of amazing things and almost like miracles that they would propel a bullet at high speed in the direction that you sent it. But there also were these bumper stickers and the culture around it scared the heck out of me, honestly. Well, that's the ugly side. So my book (laughs) details the sort of healthy American cultural connections, many of which you start to hit on there in the early part of the book. Some of the danger, my father's best friend and his father were killed by a gun when my dad was 16. Gun safety was always a very important part of our lives. And the book progresses to to a place where the healthy part of Americana has been tapped into and twisted into that ugly part of Americana that you just sort of hinted at and described there with this really vile, um, frightening, over-the-top, you know, when you when you have this sort of really uh, emotional cultural stuff that I tried to describe early, it's not too hard for a nefarious entity like the NRA to tap into that and twist it into something that can be used quite effectively to gen up 
a whole class of people. And there are other things that have done that in societies through the years, but the NRA and the firearms industry's use of that uh, culture is, has been quite effective. So I'm interested in this career you had in, in the gun industry. Tell me how it felt when you first took that, that job and what, what your role was at the beginning and how it developed over time. Well, I I was sort of like a kid in a candy store and I didn't put a lot of thought into it. My politics were kind of unthinking. I had grown up driving in a field in circles as kids and on farm and ranch doing tractors, listening to talk radio, pour into the cab of the tractors for hours at a time. And so I had this sort of unthinking bumper sticker ish, um, conservative sort of thought in my mind that those were my personal politics to the, to the degree I thought about them. And, and when I got into the firearms industry, it was sort of like a dream career for me. There was a time in the industry that early in the early nineties, early to mid nineties, when I first got into the firearms industry, much like our politics, it was a responsible time in an industry that still held to voluntary uh, cultural norms, much like our politics did. Right. I note that in the book that we think as Americans that so much of our lives and our country is based upon this really rigid system of laws and regulations. I found that not really to be true. I think so much of it is based upon these voluntary norms that we impose upon ourselves. And the industry did that. AR-15s were legal, but no responsible company really produced or marketed them. Now we have 550 some companies producing and marketing them and calling them incredibly irresponsible things. Um, most of that has nothing to do with laws. It has to do with voluntary norms that were broken down. So early in the industry, I think I could get away with this sort of unthinking kind of dreamscape that I lived in because all of these cultural norms still were existed uh, on, on the industry by our own accord. And over time, as those norms and some laws broke down, much like our politics has broken down in the same way. And that's sort of the through line of the book is that the the firearms industry and the NRA first developed and created this modern political toxicity and then handed it off to the right. It was an existence that was a lot easier than it may seem like it is today because those norms, it was a much calmer, um, more controlled, more decent place than it is now. Were you there when the Clinton administration passed some firearms laws what was the sense of the politics of that within your company? I don't think everybody in the industry understood it fully at the time, but that was definitely, and I tell the story in the book, that was definitely a turning point in the industry, in the NRA's politics, and in the politics of our country. You're referring to the kind of layman's term for that bill um, was the assault weapons ban, and that was passed by Bill Clinton um, and signed by Bill Clinton September 13th of 1994. Um, I got into the industry in 1995. And in the lead up to that, there was a rush to buy every single gun, every single assault weapon, every kind of high cap mag was like last call at the bar. Everybody had to rush up and get one last thing before it was over with. And that was the first time that any party had really embraced gun control, as it was called, in a political way. Clinton used his embrace of the first, the Brady bill, which created our national background check system called NICS. And then the assault weapons ban, he used those as political cudgels for the first time. And I think that, that set the industry and it set our country on its current trajectory um, because the battle lines became a lot clearer for the people who wanted to, to fight those political battles. The NRA 
from that point forward, they still claimed to be a nonpartisan organization, but it became pretty clear within a few years, there was no more nonpartisan to it. It was one side versus the other. It was Republican versus Democrat. It was us versus them, right versus wrong. And if that sounds a lot like our modern politics today, well, it's because it is our modern politics today. I've run a business and when there are a lot of new sales, you get excited. I mean, it's a good thing, right? When when people go rushing out to buy guns. I assume that you guys had that feeling. When did you start to feel compunction about it? That's a really interesting, weird um, sort of truth and question about the industry. It got to a point where two things spurred sales like nothing else. You as, as a businessman can understand, you want you want your business growth to be based upon your accomplishments, your genius, your hard work, your teams. That's what the dream is, right? You, it, it, it's all on your shoulders. You do smart your things and product. work hard. You're right. And then, yeah. and then that's what drives the business growth. But it got to a point in the firearms industry where it was very obvious that two things drove sales. Fear of an impending legislative action or a democratic win or anything like that. Again, fear is the key. And then fear generated from legislative activity after a mass shooting. So essentially boiling it down, Democratic wins produced a big spikes in sales and horrific national tragedies, Sandy Hook, Parkland, Las Vegas, Sutherland Springs, Virginia Tech. Like I could go on with all these terrible mass shootings. All of those produced spikes in sales. And it was something that was understood in the firearms industry, but never really spoken about. There weren't like memos on it. There weren't like emails on it, but everybody kind of fooled themselves into thinking that all of the growth in the firearms industry, which was tremendous. When I got in, there were about 300 to 350,000 guns sold per month. That sounds like a lot. When I left in 2020, there were almost 2 million guns sold per month. That was a sort of exponential growth that happened um, in the firearms industry over the last 20 years. And so Everybody wanted to believe that it was due to genius. And these sales are tracked by the National Incident Background Check System. If you look at all the big sales spikes, they follow two things. National tragedies like Sandy Hook or Democratic wins like Barack Obama being elected. Um, They're clear as can be. If Republicans are elected, sales dip. The only thing that changes that are, for instance, George Bush, 9-11 changed that because we had a big national tragedy. So that spurred fear. Donald Trump, uh, the the highest gun sales in the history of America were in, in the last 18 months of Donald Trump's presidency. And I don't think it's an accident that the most tumultuous, fearful, frightened, political, social time of our age, probably of your life and my life, George Floyd, BLM, riots, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, election fraud, on and on and on, also corresponded with the highest gun sales in American history. Those things are not detached. I mean, you've mentioned a bunch of these tragedies. Uh, One that can't help but stick in my mind is the Columbine shooting because I grew up in Colorado and I know people who who were affected by that. I'm not sure I understand the link between more guns being bought and such a demonstration of their danger. Explain that. It's sort of a twisted thing. But Columbine, the first mass school shooting, obviously happened in 1999, just south of Denver. The NRA show was scheduled to happen 10 days after that horrific event in Denver. The NRA ended up pulling the plug on most of it, not all of it. 
all of the stories in the book, but the way that this lays out is a horrific shooting happens. People in the shooting industry and gun customers assume, essentially, I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it here, but they assume, holy crap, that really is bad. Now, politicians really are going to pass some sort of legislation because we all agree that's bad. I mean, the Columbine deal was horrific, uh, as have been all the other school shootings and, and mass shootings. But the mass of gun customers is so primed by the NRA to say, see, now the evil politicians are going to use this tragedy to pass restrictions on your rights. You better rush out and buy guns before that happens. It becomes sort of this vicious cycle. Every single time a, a bad event happens, the NRA says, see, they're going to pass legislation. People run out and buy guns. There's a fight about it. It calms down. And then and then everybody waits for the next thing to happen. And then the next thing happens, they say, see, they're going to pass legislation. They're going to take your guns and they rush out and buy guns. It just happens time after time after time. So when this is happening over and over, you see this cycle, you start to observe it in more detail and the increasing politicization of this fight and the, the polarization, you know, it, it sort of seems to pull everything into it, into that vortex these days. Tell me about your career a little bit more. You're rising in the ranks. What do you become within this company? I was this farm and ranch kid without a ton of business experience. Um, a couple of us started at a very small little fledgling, literally paycheck bouncing little company, but it had, it was, it's named Kimber, but it had this kind of sexy Porsche BMW Jaguar cachet, right? We didn't make cheap Saturday night specials. We made really nice little hunting rifles and eventually the finest 1911 style century old, you know, replication of pistols um, ever made. And we made, made and sold millions of them. I became vice president of sales because I started a company when it was very small and I was essentially the only sales employee. And, and over time, we built the company up to one of the largest and most influential in the shooting sports industry. I was nominated for the highest awards in the industry, a finalist at multiple times, the same awards that Charlton Heston won, that Wayne LaPierre won, that Bill Ruger won, that all of these iconic um, gun folks, um, I was on those same sort of stages. Uh, and... I started having doubts about the industry in the early 2000s when the obvious, just sort of mindless um, devotion to the Republican side of the aisle really started catching my attention because I've always been an environmental and natural resource conservation advocate. And I started to note that um, the NRA and the shooting sports industry was saying one thing, saying they were for con wildlife conservation or for the environment, but they were supporting these candidates that were horrific. And Dick Cheney was instituting the Cheney Energy Dominance Plan and essentially rototilling these <laughs> iconic wild places in the West United States that were extremely important to me. I stood up to criticize those. I did a press conference in 2004 at the National Press Club there in D.C., and I knew what the press hook was. I was this supposed to be conservative person from this right wing sort of industry. And I was criticizing Republican, right? That was going to be the press hook. And it certainly was the press hook. It, it went crazy and was on the cover of many papers. My reasoning was how can anybody really come after me? I'm just standing up for the principles that the industry says it stands up for every day. Wildlife conservation, wild places, environment. And the industry at the highest levels, the NRA and the NSSF came after me. I was trolled threatened to be fired a hundred times, not because I was standing up for the things I was standing up for, but because I dared to criticize a Republican. And that's where the scales kind of started to fall from my eyes. I'm like, okay, so you guys have just been um, 
jerking everybody around here saying you're for these things. These are just culture war things to get people like me ginned up or, or to borrow or to appropriate the sort of that, that sort of beautiful American culture stuff we talked about early in the conversation. You guys want to appropriate the good part of that, but you want to chastise anybody who stands up for those things. And once those scales, those political scales fell from my eyes, they really fell. I became an advocate as, as ardent as I could and still keep my job in an industry that employs quite a strict police state. So I fought back against the NRA from the inside any way I could. I gave more of those press conferences. I walked right up to the edge. I criticized the NRA on conservation and environmental policy where I could. I supported Democratic candidates. Um, I, did, I did all the things that nobody else in the industry did. Um, and it was a perilous existence for a long time. How did your company react to support you or not support you as you made those moves? Very nervously. Um, essentially, it, it was a tight wire act. I was walking on a razor's edge, use whatever analogy you want to use. But for 15, 16 years, I walked on that edge of knowing that I was just one thirty second snippet in an interview from being fired at any time. So I to maintain all the street cred and that sort of national press club press hook that I had, like I'm the only person in this industry that will stand up. So the press came to me. So I had this influence. I worked with senators. I was a go between and important votes because I'm the only dissent in the industry. I had to, to build up my street cred by building and, and maintaining a company that I was proud of. And at the same time, work against the industry. And it was that working in between everything you know, that's really the storyline of the book. And it was hard for me and hard for my family. And um, for a long time, I was very proud of the company. And I still am proud of the company that we built. We didn't, um, never sold, built or sold AR-15s while I was there. Never built or sold um, cheap um, plastic pistols. Uh, didn't do any of that stuff. Very Things that I'm very proud of that we did. But the whole industry became so singularly intertwined with right-wing Republican politics, especially over the last three to five years, that it was just, it, I, I couldn't bear it any longer. Did your advocacy affect the reputation of the company? Did yeah, people boycott so. it? Well, like, what what, happened, what well, happened there? We kept growing. Um, I was, you know, but th but there, it, what, not a day or a week or a month went by where somebody didn't, or there weren't some trolling activity about something that I did or, or, even more frightening, something my wife or my kids did. Um, Sarah, my wife, would make a comment on social media about some policy she wanted to change, and there would be an army of trolls that would attack her and me um, and try to get me fired for that, for things that my wife said. I like to believe that what I did helped the company too because I believe there are a lot of responsible gun owners out there who are not okay with this craziness with this insanity that we have seen over the last three to five years, but there were certainly loud, vociferous trolls as we've seen the same sort of people. Now we see on the right. Um, anytime somebody, some Republican says something bad about Trump, right? The Republican troll army goes into full force. And I mean, they can be Jim Mattis or Fiona Hill or whoever, and they all get trolled for simply standing up for some principle that certainly happened to me. Yeah. Did you find any allies in other gun companies uh, either publicly or privately? Privately, there were a few that had misgivings and would utter them after one too many drinks, but their paychecks and their livelihoods were also tied to furtherance of those same misgivings. And 
I did see people throughout the years just kind of quietly leave the industry and then afterwards say, yeah, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. Like it's, it was crazy. Like, but the people who stayed in had a way of convincing themselves that what they were experiencing wasn't as insane as it actually was. Um, and I think we've seen that same exact thing with the Republican party. If you took some of these people who are still quote unquote in the party and, and 10 years ago and explain to them what their existence would be now, they would say, oh, no, no way. It will never get that bad. I'll never do that. I'll never, you know, I'll never look the other way at an insurrection. But here they are. <laughs> here they are. And um, the firearms industry had a way of doing that same thing to people. What do you think it was about you that enabled you to be a contrarian in that way? It's clearly a very challenging uh, tightrope it sounds like you and your family took a lot of damage from doing that. Where's that coming from that ability to, to take those stances or did it just happen a little bit by little bit? You know, that's one of the best questions I've been asked about all of this. And I've been asked a lot of them because I think you hit on the deficiency in our current societal and political system. I look back at it really wasn't very hard for me to do the things I did. I mean, it was hard to take the grief and the trolling and worry about getting fired all the time. Yeah, that was hard. But all in my mind, all I was doing was standing up for the things that I said were important when I first got into the industry. In other words, I just didn't sacrifice the principles. I just didn't let the, the things that were important to me, I didn't let them go by the wayside. I didn't look the other way as they were piecemeal taken apart. And because of that, I never had any problem questioning or challenging my own tribe. I was supposed to be inside this tribe of the firearms industry, which is very, very tight knit and kind of police force, totalitarian um, controlled. Nobody speaks out of turn. Nobody. I mean, there's never been another book written by an industry insider. Why? They would never allow it. Like You'd be trolled, fired, castigated. I mean, I had to leave a career at the peak of my career to do this. But all I was doing is just standing up for the things that I knew to be important, that these people who I worked with once said were important. And I think it, that ability or willingness to stick to your principles and have the guts to just question your tribe really is what we're missing in our political and societal system today. I see so many Republicans who now agree with or cheer things that, as we just spoke about five or six years ago, they would have thought were from some satanic cult and here they are having sacrificed their principles and now are cheering them. This thought that we're going to cheer, not that Kyle Rittenhouse is guilty or not guilty from a legal standpoint. I don't argue with the, with the, the jury's difficult decision there. What I do argue with is this propensity to make him into a hero because he killed two people with an AR-15. Literally, Charlie Kirk two weeks ago said, as, he was as Rittenhouse was introduced to a standing ovation, Kirk said, you are a hero to millions. Those are his exact words. What kind of sick bullshit is that? And these are things that the firearms industry, people in the gun business would never have done um, 10, 10 or 12 years ago. So all I did was just stick to the principles. <laughs> you know, I don't think I changed very much. I think the industry and society around me changed. And from that standpoint, it's not that hard to stick to your principles. It needs to be a lot easier to criticize your tribe. What's your understanding of why the gun industry and the Republican Party keep moving in that direction? I think you, you and I both see a kind of a feedback loop that's taken place that's 
increasingly radicalizing both of those parts of society, and they're very linked now, as you've said. How do we understand that process? Well, the process is a long one and is laid out in the book how it all happened, how commercial interests, first it was political interest, fear, conspiracy, hatred, racism, those sorts of things drove political outcomes for the NRA. I think that kind of accidentally stumbled into like, wait, we really can push the envelope like this and people really will respond and we really can win the next midterm or the next presidential election. Holy crap. And it just so happens that those are exactly the same things that drive gun sales in the short term. And I like to think of that as like the quarterly capitalism model of politics. You worry about the next election and the next election only. You don't worry about whether your country is in existence in 10 years or your company is in existence 10 years. You just worry about that next quarter. Make the profit, win the election, whatever, whatever I have to do. We'll pick up the pieces afterwards. And I think the NRA and the firearms industry assumed at some point they would probably have to pick up the pieces somewhere. But the thing is still going like it's still ever more radicalized. They're like, well, can we push the button one more time? Can it can we you know, can we win one more election? Can we crank up ever more fear? And once it gets to a point where your only political goal is owning or destroying your enemy, which I think is where the firearms industry is now and where the Republican Party is now then literally nothing won't be accepted, right? That, that's why Kyle Rittenhouse is celebrated. Why? Because he's killing liberals. Your ultimate goal is to destroy and kill the other side. Well, then you're not going to stop until you destroy and kill the other side. It's not to work with or have a functioning society anymore. It's to kill the other side, to destroy the other side. And that's why you see this worsening. I'm fearful that they will not stop until they reach now the ultimate goal, which is to kill or destroy the other side. That's why half the country is worried about a civil war and the other half is wishing for it. Like that's the goal of, of politics now. I can't tell you how chilling that is to me. It makes me think about 1930s Germany. It should. It is absolutely hair raising. Do you have any suggestions about how to arrest these trends? I think it happens, you know, and I've been an advocate. Um, I think it should scare you. I think it should um, correlate in, in people's minds to 1936 Germany. I think that, you know, Representative Thomas Massey from Kentucky cradling an M60 machine gun in his Christmas card. That's the same machine gun that Rambo used to make his political points, his so thoughtful political points. That gun fires about 650 rounds a minute. That's more than 10 rounds a second. Imagine if a few of those have been deployed on January 6th. I think Lauren Boebert arming her kids with AR-15s and her Christmas card. These are all symbols of we're going to keep pushing until we kill you with these guns. How we arrest it, I think that people, reasonable gun owners, formerly reasonable Republicans have to stand up and say, wait a second, this has gone too far. It has to happen from within. And that's why I keep calling on gun owners. And I know there are a lot of them out there. Sadly, many of them were not spurred to action by things like Sandy Hook or Columbine or Parkland or Las Vegas or Sutherland Springs, because a singular bad actor can always be explained away as some insane individual that's not a member of our tribe. They're not. But when you see entire political movements based on the radicalization of firearms, the Proud Boys, what's their centerpiece? Guns. The Oath Keepers, what's their centerpiece? Guns. January 6th, you saw two kinds of flags, Trump American political flags and come and take an AR-15 flags. 
guns and gun rights are at the very center of that insurrection. And I think that has a lot of responsible gun owners freaked out, rightfully so. Gun owners have to be a part of our societal solution. And I think they're finally worried that they might be a part of the thing that tears apart our society and democracy. And that should scare the shit out of us. In many countries, the last barrier to authoritarian takeover is the military. Yeah. And our military, well, at the moment, I feel like we have a lot of faith in in that institution and its commitment to democracy. And it was kind of led pretty well during the final throes of Trump's first term. But I also hear these rumblings about the right wing in the military. Do you have any insight into that nexus between, I mean, there's the there's where the big guns are. So I think I'm like you, I was heartened. I was heartened by people like Miley and, and, and other principled folks in the military who stood up for democracy. I'm not too heartened by people like Flynn. He's not a heartening sort of guy. I'm fearful that militarization and this praise, this weird sort of fascist praise of military heroes, police heroes, things of this sort, is so intertwined with this new proto-fascist movement that is spurring an undercurrent in the military, not at the leadership level at current, but in the troop level that is quite fearful. And, you know, there are multiple through lines and stories in my book about how important the wars of the Bush years and the aftermath of that sort of militarism, how important that became to our radicalization that we see today, because it's hard to describe this weird fascism that you see, but there's a Bible in there. It's wrapped in a flag. There are soldiers. The AR-15 is a military gun. It's this weird recipe mix that does certainly contain parts of militarism, praise of military valor, very much like, again, like 1936 Germany. I think we need to listen. I don't remember the three generals that just wrote the article. You probably saw it two or three weeks ago that warned um, they're very worried about um, an insurrection next time. I think they're right to be worried. I'm worried about it because uh, I've seen it from the inside and there, and there are stories about at the base level how how guns and military and officers and all this stuff is wound together. How are you treated now by your former colleagues and friends and uh, acquaintances in that industry and in that world? Largely ignored, except for by people who read the book and some former colleagues have, some still in the industry have read it and they have called and said, holy shit, that's good. They don't want to like it. They don't want to believe it. But the, but the truth is, it's not a it's not a preachy policy book. It's my memoir. It's my family's memoir. This is what happened. It lays out the history of how we got here. It's not something to be argued with because it's. I don't really lay out arguments. I just detail what happened and how gun sales grew and what the history was and how Barack Obama cried in the White House after Sandy Hook. Like these are these are all things in the book, and when they're all strung together by somebody who lived them all, um, I think it's pretty convincing to folks. There are still the majority of people inside the industry don't want to believe that any of this stuff is true. I think they want to look the other way at 24 million gun sales last year and wonder where are so many of those guns going? What 
is it that so many people want to do with those guns? Most of those guns are not being sold for target shooting, for trap leagues, for hunting, for self-defense. I mean, self-defense is some of the ruse of it, but what are we selling 5, 10, 12 million AR-15s for? Where are those going? Um, I'm not talking about Americans' right to own them. I'm talking about culturally. What is it that we're doing to our society that we need that many AR-15s in so many hands? And then and then gen up those people telling them that they should be ready to kill people on the other, you know, the political aisle. And then see people march into the Michigan Capitol with loaded AR-15s and nobody in the gun industry chastises them. I think that if, if, if cars were at the center of an, an insurrection and a threat against the Michigan governor's life, the car industry would be freaked out, right? Well, there is no freak out from the firearms industry about what's going on here. I mean, if you just watch what happened in Afghanistan, it only takes a very small percentage of the population that's armed and uh, determined to control a country. Yeah, that's why I think we cannot look the other way at these. I know Massey from Kentucky seems like a joker, right? He's got a bowl haircut. He's 50 years old. He still looks like he's 22. Um, and he's sitting on a couch in perfectly pressed khakis holding an, an M60. People kind of want to look the other way, like, well, that's weird. It's more than weird. It's more than weird. That's sending the message that, like, even that guy, even Massey, can have power over you because he's got the M60. It's the sort of political intimidation message that's being sent. And I, and I think an important... I mean, it's just so goddamn irresponsible. I mean, like, you, I got to figure that he's probably just like... I'm going to score some points. I'm going to raise a couple dollars. I'm going to like secure my right flank, whatever the hell his political calculus is. But you multiply that by multiple masses and, and, and the whole thing shifts a step or two. And you're exactly right. And just think about this simple, simple little story. You're, you're at a dinner party with, you're going to have 10 of your friends over, nine of them are there. You're sitting down, you have a glass of wine, you have political arguments, you have political discussions, you're talking, somebody spills the wine, maybe there's a voice raised, whatever, but it's a good, healthy debate. You've done this 20 times. One friend isn't there yet. Suddenly that one friend walks in, he's got an AR-15 on his chest, loaded, 30 round magazine, finger on the trigger, he sits down at the table. All of a sudden, there's only one freaking opinion that matters. It's not yours. It's not your friends. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how accomplished or expertness at the table. None of that matters. It matters only what the guy with the gun is the only one that matters. And in that way, these Masseys and Boberts, I mean, Boberts got an arrest record that looks like it fell out of a Tiger King episode. And she's a congresswoman. Why? She carries a gun. She's bad. She's intimidated. So that it's a way for them to jump over the traditional insistence on expertise, accomplishment, decency, governing. You become the person at the table. You become the badass. Your opinion's the only one that matters. And that's what Massey's doing. That's what Boebert's doing. That's what Trump is enabling. That's why the January 6th deal was so important to his fascist view, because all of a sudden it's those people. It doesn't matter how accomplished they are, how smart they are, um, who appointed them. It matters if they have a gun or not. That is 1936 Germany. You're, you're making me ill, man. <laughs> well, I don't mean <laughs> to do that. <laughs> I mean, it's just... It's scary. What was the determination you made to actually leave your company? What what was the thinking there? What was happening? Why'd you do that? So it was a battle for me to stay or leave for a long time. And I know it's hard for people 
that just hear my story, you know, in a quick snippet. Well, you stayed in the industry for 25 years, but you fought against it. I, I had more impact staying inside than I would have getting out up to a point. And I think the point for me was January. It was late January 2017. Trump's inauguration day happened to correspond with the last day of the largest industry trade show. It's called SHOT Show. It's a huge trade show, one of the biggest in the world held in Las Vegas. And I'd never seen anything like this for the, the devotion of the firearms industry to Trump and Trumpism and totalitarianism for me crystallized that day because they stopped the trade show. You know, thousands of people who move with this frenetic pace of ants were stopped. There was a flat screen TV in almost every booth, these huge booths, the size of houses. They piped the audio for the inauguration throughout the entire trade show. There were companies from all the European countries in there and all, you know, all over the world as if they had the same politics as us, as if I had the same politics as everybody. But that American carnage speech, which is what it came to be known, was piped in for everybody to hear. And it was like a Catholic mass in there. Nobody moved. And I looked around. I'm like, what in the hell has this thing become? It's a cult. I found ways to fight back and punch for a couple more years, but I made up my mind. I came home. I remember I plopped into bed at midnight after getting off a late night flight. And I told my wife, I, I can't do this shit anymore. So I looked for ways to punch on my way out. But that was that's what really crystallized it for me. I think it's a, that's an uh, amazing image. And I have absolutely no trouble believing it. It's obviously true. You don't have to stretch at all to understand because everything's been pointing that way. Yeah. And, and so it's, it was very difficult for me to see something that I once thought could and should be a healthy part of my youth and then of my professional career and see that all kind of taken and twisted and pulled away. I haven't thought of myself as anything right of center for a long, long time since the early 2000s. I didn't even really give it much thought then, but to the extent I did, I, I certainly did then. But for the last 20 some years, I've considered myself to be progressive, if not liberal. Um, and But I also see how difficult it must be for Republicans who have seen their party taken over in the same way that I saw my industry taken over by something that just didn't resemble what it once was. I'm critical of Republicans who didn't see it earlier but I lived a similar kind of story, right? And so I get I get how difficult it is to wake up and, you know, the Bill Crystals of the world and the Tom Nichols and the Charlie Sykes and the like the, these these never Trump Republicans who, you know, I want to say, why didn't you leave earlier? Um, but I get how difficult it is to see something hijacked like that. Oh, we and I think we have to honor those people like them and you, because as you said earlier when I asked about how do we arrest this. We need every former Republican, every former gun advocate to join the fight against this increasing radicalization of the country. Yeah, I think it's for a while, you know, 10 years ago or something, I thought it was just something that impacted the things that I loved, um, conservation, the environment, um, some societal things. Now, I, I believe it's an existential threat to our democracy. And the odd thing is, is that these people are screaming Second Amendment, these these radicals who are, and many of them wrapped up in the radicalization of the Republican Party and guns, they're screaming about maintaining their Second Amendment rights. Do you really think that these people that want to overturn democracy 
have any <laughs> predilection to hold amendments in a constitution together, you're not going to be worrying about amendments if they get what they want. You're going to be worrying about, you know, digging a hole, staying away from the, the Stasi and trying to find your next meal. This is frightening stuff. I want to dig in just a bit more into that decision to leave. You said when you made the call, but a couple of years go by before you actually do it. What, what's, what's happening in your head? How are you rearranging your world to prepare for it, et cetera? Well, I think I came to the rational realization that I was going to leave. And then, you know, a couple of days later, I would get up and go to work and I'm still trying to build this company that I'm proud of. So I struggle with it for a couple of years. Maybe I can stay in. Maybe I can do this. I tell the story of me helping a journalist get into SHOT Show and, and um, his name is Elliot Woods. And he wrote a great, a fantastic New Republic piece called Fear, the American Terror Industry, which, you know, he's a fantastic journalist. And I, I got him into the show. I got him a badge. I gave him all the leads. I told him where to look. I told him what logs to look under. Um, I did that. I fought for decisions that I thought were right in supporting retailers like Dick Sporting Goods, who made some courageous decisions after the Parkland shooting um, and were essentially castigated by everybody else in the industry. So I had this sort of, should I get out today? Wait a second, I can win one more battle. And it became like that for two years. Wait a second, I can, I can throw one more punch. Maybe I can fix it. Maybe I can tip it over. So rationally, I knew I had to get out, but I still, I still was trying to throw punches on the way out and that kept me in longer than I wanted. So then what happened? Well, I decided that it was too big for me. There were just too many battles, much like those never Trump Republicans must have felt. It was a runaway train and it couldn't be stopped. So I decided the best thing I could do is tell my story from the inside. And I wrote the book that I wrote. Did you write that while you were an employee or? I started, or? I started putting it all together um, before I left. And then I just dove into it for 18 months and did nothing but write and edit and, and stay up late at night and drink wine till midnight and then drink coffee at six in the morning and do all the things that writers do. That's what we're supposed to do. So, um, it was a tumultuous thing, but much of it just poured out of me, you know, and the story and, and the sort of trajectory of my life just kind of poured out. There were chapters that as with all writers that took hours to disseminate the perfect word for one sentence. But, um, but I worked on that for 18 months and I thought that that's the next step in my battle. I didn't give up fighting the battle. I just thought, well, I've tried to do this from the inside. Now I'm going to have to tell everybody what it's really like from the outside. Did you do this thing where you uh, write an outline, find a publisher, or did you write the whole thing and then go look for someone? What was the actual process of getting? No, I did the, the nonfiction route, which, it, you know, again, I'm a complete neophyte, right? I've never written a book. I didn't, you already know more than I knew. <laughs> like, and I had, and, and I didn't know these, the, the way it goes, but I, I wrote a book proposal, which was 167 pages with the help of a marvelous agent who I pitched on the idea of the book, just verbally. I just pitched her on the idea of the book early on. And, um, she saw the genius in it. She said, this, this, this is going to be an important book. We have to do this. So then I worked with her and an editor friend of mine for nearly uh, two or three months. And we put together a 167 page proposal, which included all the outline of the book, a couple of chapters, which ended up being in the book, but shuffled around a market study. What's it similar to? What are the topics? So that's that's all the stuff that went into that proposal. And then we pitched it, sold it to um, the top 25 editors in the country at the five big publishers and was very fortunate. Hachette and Public Affairs um, purchased the book. Um, and they like to say they, they publish important books. That's what their main goal is. And so I'm, I've been very honored 
that they've put a lot of resources into this book. What is it similar to when you were looking at the market for books like that? What did you find as analogs? It's it's it has bits and pieces of lots of stuff, but it's not it's not completely similar to anything because it is a memoir. It is my story, but it, it has a little bit of thank you for smoking in it. You know the sort of inside. There, there's some crazy stories in it, m- much like that. The movie The Insider, the Russell Crowe movie The Insider, it's kind of like that. It's sort of like Empire of Pain, the book about the opioid industry from the inside. Um, so it's got it's got historic components and memoir components, and it has this narrow lens on me and my family and what's going on, and then a wide lens on the history of our country and society and the gun business and how my life relates to what's going on in the country and politics, and it alternates back and forth between those two. And that's I guess that's why people like it. How is it doing? It's great. It's selling great. And it's, I've got an incredible amount. You know, I've, New York Times did a big profile. I've been on NPR Fresh Air. Um, I'm very honored to do podcasts like this one we're done with you today. I've done lots of those. I, I saw you on The Daily Show. Yeah, I was on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, who was an incredibly, I found him to be an incredibly insightful. He's funny, but he's also very insightful. He's a um, smart guy. He's very smart. Um Yes, very good questions. And so once I click send on the final draft, all I cared about from then on is just that it changes things. The book world is, contrary to what most people think, it's not a place where you go make a lot of money. I mean, maybe if you're Barack Obama and you get a $10 million advance, um, that's great. But most books and most authors are not that way. It's a slog and it's not really very profitable. But for me, I've got 20 years into trying to undo the sort of radicalization that I fear is undoing the country. And so now... All I really care is that the book furthers that conversation, and I think it's doing that. I'm certain it's doing something. I'm certain that it it has to be an important part of the fight because people who are interested in that are going to read it. But do you think that the sum total of all of the activism against guns is in any way competing with the trends? It kind of feels like we're we're losing the battle. Do you think there's a chance for winning this battle? Yeah. I often think that much of the work, and I'm, I'm doing um, a lot of work for Giffords, which has been labeled a gun control organization. I don't really view it that way. I think that we're now in a cultural battle. I don't really think these sort of cute rolled up policy papers are going to fix this thing that we're in now. I think progressives and Democrats still think that just smart policies are going to fix the thing that we're in. I, I don't view it that way. I don't see how the cat is so far out of the bag. The horse is so far out of the barn. I don't know what the expression is, but it's, I mean, h- how do you put all those guns back into holsters? I don't know. You don't do that, but we can culturally um, try to restore norms. I think those, I think restoring those norms and trying to correct cultural problems it's going to prove to be as difficult as that sounds. It's going to prove to be much easier than arresting this with a long list of policy prescriptions. I think this is true because it wasn't very long ago that these norms were really ardently adhered to by the shooting sports industry, the thing that I was in, and frankly, very ardently adhered to by the Republican Party and much of politics. It's it's not like this is ancient history. It wasn't last century. It was 10 or 15 years ago. Could you have a, a new leader of the NRA that was... You know, like you have a new, the new Pope who's been kind of a liberal Pope, right? And has taken the church in a direction more interested in poverty. Sometimes you get in an organization 
that's been very conservative, a Gorbachev or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think it could happen. I think we're more likely to get responsible people who rise up and create organizations or movements that counterbalance the NRA or that counterbalance the Republican Party. It's hard for me to envision somebody like a reasonable Mitch McConnell showing up because the incentives in the system that they have built only push them to ever more radical positions. That's what they're rewarded for. That's what, I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse is now, he's 20 years old and he's going to be, he's going to be a hero. He's going to be a millionaire. The incentives are too twisted. I mean, it sounded to me like you viewed the, the gun laws of the, of the 90 of 94, the backlash to them as like a really important step in this direction. Isn't there a possibility for sort of backlash in the other direction when you really have a militia somewhere goes and kills hundreds of people in a, and then has to, the army has to go in and there's some kind of incident that's just so that, 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 that just splits the population in a, in a different way so that it isolates the crazies. So I think, yes, I think you're right. I think that's definitely a possible eventuality, if not now a likelihood. The problem I have with that is that I think that that puts the match and the gasoline so close together that it's going to be difficult to know how things burn after that. I would like to lay out this this scenario like you just say, like, okay, this happens and this happens, then we do this, then we have a legislative fix, then we go on about our lives and it's fixed. I think it's just as likely that all that shit happens and bloodshed spills into the streets and we don't know how to control it. Yeah, bad things lead to more bad things. Yeah, that's what I'm fear. And so I want to try to fix this cultural problem or, or at least course correct it a little bit before we take such a risky move. So how are you then post book directing your energy? You said you're doing some stuff with Giffords, but you're, you're not an old man. You have time. How are you going to apply your energy? I'm not sure what the final answer to that or really what the next big answer to that is. I can tell you, I'm going to continue to work with Giffords um, because I'm going to try to do everything I can to undo the radicalization that I, that I write about and that I'm worried about. And I'm done with the old definitions of what's good and bad. Like the gun industry says, if you ever mention the name Gabby Giffords, a centrist Democrat who was shot by a Glock, like if you mention her, it's some sort of evil thing. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm done with your stupid definitions. So I'm not shying away from working with good people um, like the folks at Giffords. I'm going to continue to do that. I'm also spending an awful lot of time promoting the book and I'm doing a Ted talk here in a couple of weeks and I'm traveling around to bookstores. And so probably for a year, I'll be doing that. I think that one of the most important things I can do is spread the message of the book. What develops from there? Um, we'll see. I know that there's the outreach from gun owners so far from all sorts of people, progressives. Yeah, they love the book, but lots of center, center, right, um, gun owners or people who know gun owners or people who are familiar with the topic have reached out, sent me letters. I mean, I got five this morning, almost all, they look the same. Thank God somebody did this. I can't take it anymore. My family is a gun owning family or I'm a gun owner. These people are crazy. Thanks for stepping up. Like the trolling versus praise that I've got has been exactly opposite what I thought it would be. I thought I would get 
a bajillion trolls a day and one positive letter. And it's exactly the opposite. Like they're all positive and I hardly ever get a troll. And that just tells me there's some market niche out there. There's something in the populace that people are worried like you and I are worried. I've read this sort of thing where if you go to a totalitarian um, dictatorship the week before a government falls and you walk down the street and ask all these people, are you in favor of the dictator? And you can't find anybody that's not in favor of the dictator. Then the week after it falls, you walk down the same street and find the same people and you can't find a single person who admits they were in favor of the dictator. And I wonder if that's not what we're dealing with now. It's just too many of us are afraid to stand up and, and say what needs to be said. It, it, that's what it feels like to me. We're running a really high risk of Republicans taking control of Congress in 2022 and Trump or a Trumpist coming back in 2024. I'd say greater than 50% chance. And there's just hard to have any doubt that those things in combination take us further down a scary path. How do you think about the politics, the short-term politics, when you're you know, working on this idea of cultural transformation? I think you're exactly right. And I think the Democrats and progressives need to understand that now is the time to get better at politics. It's pretty sad when we're getting outplayed by people who I don't think are all that smart. They're just a lot better at politics. And, and a classic example for me is this, I think this gun issue is very ripe to be wedged right now. And the Republicans have taken it way too far because when I have people who I just described, these are I don't, I don't ask them who they vote for, but they have the feel to me of people who have voted for a lot of Republicans in the past, a lot, a lot of these people that are reaching out. So why don't we bring them into a tent and not play into the culture war fears of the gun thing and say, look, responsible gun owners need to stand up with the responsible citizens and let's castigate this craziness, this Boebert, Massey, Trump, Rittenhouse stuff that's going on. Um, there's a home for you. I think if we did things like that, that would be a wise political move. And those are the sorts of things I'm fighting for, um, much in the same way, again, the Never Trump Republicans, the Crystals, the Sykes, the David Frums, that they're saying, look, now's not the time to quibble about little debatable policy differences. Now is the time to join forces. <laughs> and so I, I view the gun thing as very, very much more important culturally and politically than a lot of political consultants think. I'm really tired of hearing Democratic um, political consultants like, gosh, we got the polling wrong again. I don't know why. Because, because you're measuring the wrong things. You're not looking at the overall cultural touchstones. I mean, it's drinking beer. It's guns. It's Americana. It's baseball. It's, it's not the BBB. It's not Build Back Better passage or not. I mean, those policies are important, but that's not what's driving political activity right now. I mean, you said essentially that the gun issue is ripe to be wedged. In other words, used to further the Democratic Party and progressive aims. The, the Democratic Party, I think, is still burnt by 1994 and an interpretation of that election that there was backlash against trying to do something. And you've said yourself that like maybe that furthered the other side. So how do you play a wedge issue you know how the other side's going to react. They're going to immediately be, they're going to take our guns. They're going to motivate their base with this. How do you play that in a way that actually does work for the, the left? I think, and this is what the left doesn't do good in all sorts of politics. The way that the, the way that the issue needs to be played, in my opinion, is that 
give gun owners a choice. Do you want to be an insurrectionist? Do you want to be a terrorist who invades the Michigan Capitol with your AR-15s? Do you want to be the person, as my book starts, um, loaded up Second Amendment patriot, scaring and poking kids at a at a protest because you're the big bad AR-15? Do you want to be the Thomas Massey with the M60 on your lap? It's that kind of democracy, which will be no democracy, or it's come with us and be reasonable. I think that we, Democrats and progressives, do not do a good enough job with branding Republicans with the extreme side of their party. It happens to progressives all the time, right? Every progressive is AOC, every single one, right? That's the way the Republicans brand people. Um, but Democrats do not have it in them to castigate Republicans and give them a clearer choice. It, are you that kind of gun owner or not? And I can tell you the gun owners who are reaching out to me are not those kind of gun owners. They do not want to be with that tribe. It's just that progressive and Democrats do not do not quite seem to understand how, how to use that to political advantage. I fear you might be right across a bunch of a bunch of campaign issues. And I and I'm kind of wondering who is going to lead in sort of being the chief propagandist for our side for helping create that kind of clarity. And and I think we're, we're yet away from it. And time is pressing. I think you're exactly right. I'm not f so fearful that this won't work or these messages won't work. And I think you know, again, the through line of the book is that all of this political morass we were in was developed. It, it's an NRA. It's a gun issue, political morass. I know it, you may say it, it's a reproductive rights thing, or it's an environmental thing, or it's a climate thing, or it's a uh, it's an infrastructure thing. or it's a, But really, these politics are the politics that were developed by the NRA. They did the us versus them, the 100% with us against us. They did that 10 years before anybody else did that. Their approach now has permeated every single thing that we deal with. And so I think you're right to note that the sort of political branding that I suggest that needs to be done and isn't being done is the same on every issue. <laughs> Do you want to be a, a Texas kind of uh, Republican where you're literally empowering vigilantes to hunt down women who consider having abortions? Really? Like that's your, that's your Republican. But again, you know, I'm, I'm, we could go on and on about the next 20 issues, but they're all like that. And we just don't do a good enough job of branding. And to your second point, who's going to be the person who stands up and does this? Um, I don't know, but we need to find him or her. It's always that interplay between leaders and movement and figuring out how to connect them. And I hope some of that experimentation and some of those people are coming along, but wow, it's, it's been a hell of a time talking to you. Is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? No, you asked, you asked great questions. Um, I appreciate your concern and thoughtfulness and insight on all this. Um, I think you and I share <laughs> similar concerns and, um, I just hope people read the book because I, one of the things I do believe is we're going to be a lot better at getting out of this mess when we understand better how we got into it. And this book certainly explains how we got into it. So thanks for your time today. And I appreciate you putting out the effort and taking the courage to write it. The book's called Gunfight. Should should definitely be read. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Ryan Bussey. Ryan is at ryanbussey.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com 
or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.